Here we are again. Did you miss us? <laughs> I feel I haven't seen you for ages, Sales. <laughs> it's been just too long, I'm it afraid. Has. We uh, should do now, this more often. I do believe that we left off with our heroine in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, took me a while to cotton on there. I'm like, I've never had heroin in New York. But, <sighs> so. Um, yes, you were in New York. I, Barbara New York. Streisand, Bette Midler. So one God, of the other absolute highlights of the was trip. straight on to, back onto you. <laughs> It's me, me, me. Enough about me. One of the absolute highlights of the trip and um, I'm not going to say the only moment but certainly a moment where I really, really, really wished you were there um, was that we ate at Blue Hill. (gasps) which is yeah, episode okay. two of Chef's Table. Mm-hmm. Now, um, just to fill in people who may not have heard that episode previously on Chat 10 Looks 3, we uh, Crab uh, loved this documentary series on Netflix called Chef's Table. Um, I watched a few episodes. It's absolutely, completely brilliant um, and it basically profiles chefs of Michelin-starred restaurants around the world, but it does it in such a unique Way you know mm. you get this really great access to their backstory. Anyway, episode and it's number beautifully shot, like absolutely. It's the cinematography is just superb. Episode number two is Dan Barber, who is the sort of originator of the farm to table movement. Mad um, genius, mad genius. Uh, was running a farm and a restaurant called Blue Hill Farm in uh, New York. Don't like the name. I never like the word blue around food. I very rarely oh. will eat at a place that has blue in the name. Don't you think Blue Hill is a lovely lyrical? Just don't want my food to be blue. <laughs> I think I get this from Wendy Sharp. Do you not like, like blueberries? Or? <laughs> she can't stand blue anywhere near food. Like, and I think I've just got it from her. What, like you wouldn't eat blueberries, or I think she'd eat blueberries, but she wouldn't eat them from a blue plate. But oh. a blueberry's not really blue anyway, is it? It's that it's a sort it's of like a deep purpley colour. Yeah. Um, well, that's just weird. You guys are freaks. Uh, yeah, but I think maybe I've got to that point where we've been friends for so long and she's had that particular tick for so long that You've I've got, got it, it now too and <laughs> I just don't know. And so I seriously just went, Blue Hill Farm. Mm, All right, no well, thanks. let's call it Yellow Hill Farm so that you sure, can feel comfortable fine. with the story. Orange Hill Farm. Um, so Dan, Green Hill Farm would be better actually. It just <laughs> sounds more green. But then that's tautological. It would just be Hill Farm. No, but what if Why it's brown? If it's, win- if it's summer, it would be Brown Hill Farm. <laughs> oh, brown it's Hill. Blue. Oh, Brown Hill because that sounds way more appetising than Blue Hill. <laughs> Why don't we just call it shit sandwich and be done? <laughs> Sorry. Oh. So I watched How this many episode. How times can I interrupt this uh, just, story I really want to just... punch the other ass cheek of yours and just <laughs> give you a matching set. There is a set. square inch of my ass that remains <laughs> If you're wondering what I'm talking unmolested. about, please listen to the previous episode. Um, so I watched this episode. I would say that it is the type of eating and food around which I'm fairly sceptical, which is that he was serving up stuff that to me looked like a raw carrot, like a raw plate of raw vegetables that is Michelin starred. And then yeah. the reviewers, you know, the best food critics in the world would go, oh, it's like I've never eaten a carrot before. It's the most world's most amazing carrot. Mm. And so I just thought I found it, I was so curious, like, well, how good can a carrot actually be? Yeah. Like that you feel like you've never eaten a carrot before. And also he was just this singularly intense, obsessive guy. Wow. And the way that they shot that episode also really just so skillfully touched up his obsessiveness but not in a kind of crass way but like so there's lots of there's these shots of him running through oh. the hills around this blue farm and uh, <laughs> God, doesn't stack up and um and you just get this sense of the this compulsive oh. personality well the same sort of person who's driven to do long distance running you know that that's his guy's personality he looks yeah. nothing like most people that you see who are chefs he was he's like lean like you know that sort yeah, of over exercise really hard bodied yeah. sort of julie bishop type so i just found it 
so intriguing that I felt like I have to go there yep. and I have to eat that food. And that I is why you participated know, in the series. I want to know myself. <laughs> yeah. So um, my I roped in my friends Nikki, Alex and Grace who were all in New York and I said to them, look, I might be signing us up to a $50 raw carrot, okay? And so I just want to put that right out there because I want this to be clear that it's a bit of an experiment and at least if we are signed up to that, it's going to be a good New York story, okay? Yeah. So let's all be aware of that and I made them all watch the doco. Um, and then, <laughs> Did you get them to sign anything? <laughs> wow, Night Out With You sounds like fun. <laughs> like a release form. Like, you Did know. it have to end at 9.30 like most of your normal <laughs> nights out? Well, here's a happy coincidence. So Blue Hill is so popular that they only take bookings one month ahead right. and they open them, you know, at a certain time which um, – for us, luckily, happened to be the middle of the day Australian yeah. time. So me and Nikki sat on our computers the second it was there, bang, um, and Nikki got through and – but all we could get was 5 p.m., 5 p.m. table <gasps> before. And you're just like, this is the best day ever already. <laughs> so here we are, you know, 29th of <gasps> December. We've got our booking at, at Blue Hill. So – we arrive. It's on. Um, Did you go to the Man- Manhattan one? The or Manhattan the one, one yeah. So there's one in Greenwich yeah. Village in Manhattan. So it's on West Fourth Street in Greenwich Village. It's just a very nondescript front with Blue Hill written in very small letters. When you walk Blue in, lettering? no, it's not. Nothing's that. Nothing would be that obvious about it. When you walk in, um, the woman who's like the maitre d was just amazing, like beautiful, sil- short silver hair, this brocade sort of three quarter length jacket. She looked amazing. The whole restaurant has it, – it's extremely elegant and everything's perfect, but it's subtle. It's not right. in any way trying hard. There was two floral displays which sort of evoked country flowers yep. or cottage garden, but not in a – again, not in a try-hard mm. way, like we're really pushing the farm theme. So the look of it was all – it was soft greys and it was beautiful – and, again, just that sort of attention to detail that only a really intense personality yeah. could bring to it. And then the food, um, the best way I can describe it is it was like, and like I said, I'm sort of sceptical of this type of stuff, it was like I went to up the magic faraway tree and got to the land at the top and the land at the top was the best version of every bit of ordinary food that you've ever tasted in your life. Right, okay. It, Truly was amazing. So what was the first thing that came out? They just put – so you ordered three courses but then they brought other little things right, as okay. well. So the first thing that came out, which they just plonk out, was four raw radishes. Right. They were delicious. They were absolutely – So just plonked on a plate or – Plonked on a plate, no dressing, just plonked on a plate. Um, and they were just the slightest tint of pepper but beautiful and juicy and yeah. just delicious. Whole like with, the, with Whole, the green bit as well? Yep, with the yep. green bit. So you just left the end. Um, then the next thing they brought out again, which was not something you'd ordered, was a slice of kohlrabi. Oh, your favourite. <laughs> this is what I really wish you were there. This is getting great. With some shaved hazelnut on top of it. I don't know mm. how you shave the hazelnut. Again, it just tasted like a. I leave my hazelnuts hairy. <laughs> beautiful, crisp, delicious, yummy thing. Um, then so just kohlrabi with shaved hazelnut. That's it. That was it. And it was it was like it's so hard because I don't have the. Um, food language that a yeah. food writer would have to explain how delicious this was. What was the mouthfeel of the kohlrabi? I will never forgive the like food almost, writing establishment. Almost sort of like an apple. Right. Like yeah. just delicious. Never understood why people cook kohlrabi. It's so good raw. It was great. I blame the Hungarians. <laughs> then um, for I wish I'd written down what everyone else ordered, but for my starter I had um, – 
Brussels sprouts with grapes in it. Ooh, wow. Um, beautiful. Uh, Is the it others, vegetarian? No, it's not vegetarian. Right. I had venison for my right. main, also beautiful. Um, somebody else had chicken. The other two people for their entree had a thing that was called on the menu Merry Christmas. It was a bit of Romanesco, which is... Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Romanesco is just the most fabulous vegetable. So it's like a cauliflower or a mm. broccoli or something, right? But it's, that got family? This, it's got this crazy fractal pattern. Well, it was sliced into a slice that looked like a Christmas tree. Oh, I took yeah. a photo. Yeah. It's the only dish I That's took a photo of. That's the shape that it is. Um, and they really hard was... to get in Australia, but they're the most fabulous vegetable. And you can roast them whole. Like That's a, how it yeah. was done, I think. Or Actually, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was steamed. But anyway, there was a white sauce with cranberries in mm-hmm. it. So you had that sort of... Christmas green, red, and then there was two little gold leaf packages, looked like little presents that had a cheese in them. Oh, wow. It was delicious and it looked – when it came on the table, we all went, oh, wow, like it looked fantastic as well. Um, The food all looked really delicious too. It wasn't like – you know, some high-end restaurants, they look sort of clever and a bit – that molecular gastronomy look doesn't look very tasty to me. The food all looked inviting and nice Mm. and you never for one second felt like I'm not getting it or I'm not cool enough or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, main, I had venison. Um, dessert was like a poached pear with a sort of cream and some maple stuff and mm. blah, blah, blah. But then the last thing that they put on the table was an apple. And it was type, again, it wasn't something you ordered, they just brought it out. It was um, a type of apple I've never heard of, which was a snapdragon apple. Mm. Um, and it was just still in the apple cora with like all the slices just oh. hanging out. And it had some roast strawberries that had a maple sugar on them dotted on it as well, which were nice. But the apple, I swear to God, it was the greatest apple I've ever eaten in my life. It was so beautiful and juicy and delicious and the noise of it when you crunched into it, it was just the most, like, makes you want to cry, perfect apple. The other thing was, um, because, of course, the carrot was also what I wanted to try. So the main um, meal, one of the others got, it's called a carrot steak. Mm. So it's basically the carrot comes out and it is cooked, but it's a whole carrot. Um, I would guess it was roasted. And it, I had a bite of hers. It did taste, I mean, I'm not going to say it was the best carrot I've ever had, like the apple definitely Mm. was, but it was a really, the only way I can describe it, it it was like super intense carrot. It was like carrot on steroids. It was like almost like the essence of 20 carrots in one carrot. Wow. Um, Yeah, it was, the whole experience was beautiful and just satisfying in every possible way. Like, wow! I it was like going to a great. I felt like I, that is something completely unique and great, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. One man's compulsive disorder, basically, it, is and and incredible because like I and the reason I keep saying like that I'm a skeptic of this type of stuff because I I always think oh it's a bit of a wank like how how delicious yeah. can an apple actually yeah. be you know really we're we're going to pay twenty six dollars for that carrot like it truly was amazing and unique and interesting and I didn't feel remotely let down. I just felt like I got more of an insight into what an unbelievable perfectionist and intense character that guy must be to be able to make food like that. Oh, I'm so pleased that that worked out. Oh, it was – I really recommend it if you go – if you ever find yourself there to try to get a table because it was just a really great experience. I loved it. And so then um, on the plane on the way home I watched – because you've talked about – um, Dominique Crenn, who's yeah, another... from Atelier Crenn, which is in San Francisco. 
her episodes on um, a different season of Chef's Table, but you'd been talking about her for a while, so I watched that one as well. And again, oh, what an incredible personality. Just sort of not – she was intense but in a way different way to him. Yeah. And just the creativity around the food and the ideas. And what that series does, I reckon, is that it really makes it clear that the people who – are at the absolute top of that game because you sort of think, well, cooking, you know, it's about learning how to do things and how to, you know, put things together and, you know, and and plate them up to look beautiful. But what's really clear after you watch a few of these Chef Tables things is that the same things that make a filmmaker great or that make a writer great or even that make an actor great – all the things that have happened to them in their lives, all of these sort of personality quirks that they have instead of trying to flatten out, indulged and pursued even when other people think that they're crazy, that is what makes these people great. And it's um, it's a really great and well-shot reminder of that, um, that cooking at that level is an art form that is also interacts with all these other art forms. I mean, that one with Massimo Bottura, like makes it really clear that his cooking only really became spectacular when he met his wife who introduced him to um, visual art, which he really responded to yeah. in a way that completely changed and enhanced the way that he cooked. It was in, I reckon I've watched probably half a dozen episodes of that now. The other thing too that really strikes me is how often they talk about making a story with their yeah. food, whether they're pushing, you know, like buttons to do with nostalgia or childhood yeah. or evoking a, a, a country or a place or whatever, that they are attempting to, like, as you say, with a piece of art, they're making a sort of story and an emotional response. They're not just dishing up something that's delicious to eat. But, you know, hopefully the thing that with the Massimo Bottura episode that I found so amazing was that everything that they dished up at his restaurant, I just thought that looks so delicious. Yeah. Like it looked high-end but it also looked absolutely Delicious, But he's trying to evoke something like that, the famous dish of his called the crunchy part of the lasagna, which mm. is this kind of deconstructed crunchy cheese. And like he's trying to recreate the corner bit of the lasagna that he would always go for to steal from his grandmother's plate of lasagna. Like let's stop pretending that the best bit isn't the burnt <laughs> bit at the end that everybody wants, you know. And the the whole story he tells about that is, yeah, it's extraordinary. And also like these guys are often – responding to some privation or something in their childhood that's made them go searching for things. And, like, that's the thing about mm. the Dominique Crenn. You know, she was adopted as a child with her brother and so she never knew her her um, birth parents. And you get this sort of feeling as you're watching it that she's built this whole restaurant which is about nostalgia and about finding your roots and about – um, mm. telling stories and you think, wow, have you sort of built this for your parents that you didn't meet? Like it's Well, that's interesting because the restaurant's actually named after her adoptive father. She yeah, says, no, she was very know, so, close to yeah. her father. Um, um, anyway, it's a great series and that and just also my three friends that I roped in loved it too. Oh, good. <laughs> so that's like God. a good, good everyone who went, yeah, really, really thought it was something pretty special. Do you, um, I, you know, I've been talking about being in a bit of a reading slump. Yeah. So I got back on the reading horse when yep. I was on holidays. Yep. Wouldn't necessarily say I'm out of my reading slump, but I think I am. I'm out of my film slump, by the way. There's yeah, about 10 we, movies I that I want to see right now. that by so. the Churchill mm. thing. Um, do you, for a holiday read, like what do you look for in a holiday read and is it any different to what you would look for in a regular oh, read? Oh, very different. 
Yeah, same. So I, if I take nonfiction, I want to be a, I want it to be a nonfiction that I just know that I'm going to love. Like I don't really want to work hard to squeeze things out of a book that is about something that I'm not instantly interested in. Mm. But what a, a holiday read has got to be an easy read, I think, that indulges you in some way. So I took on holidays um, the new collection of Martin Amos's oh, um, yeah, okay, you nonfiction love writing. Yeah. And like it is, yeah, it's so good. I mean, he has his things that he returns to time and time again um, and this collection reflects that. But, in fact, the best analysis of his nonfiction writing is actually on the back sleeve. It reflects exactly what I think about it and mm-hmm. it is written by Rachel Cusk. I know, right? Wow. So, <laughs> just our other favourite yeah. number one lady at the moment. And um, he's, she writes... Amos is as talented a journalist as he is a novelist, but these essays all manifest an unusual extra quality, one that is not unlike friendship. He makes an effort. He makes readers feel that they're the only person there. And I think Mm. that's really true. I mean, I'm sure that Martin Amos in real life is probably a bit of a shit, but his, um, you know, it is generous. The way that he writes is um, never lazy. There's always so much packed in. You, You learn a lot, but it's also... Um, it's phrased with such elegance that sometimes mm. you just laugh with delight as you read something. Um, and I don't find that with his fiction at all. I used to, like I went through a phase of really loving Martin Amos's fiction, but really I have read no fiction of his that I've loved in the last probably 15 years, to be honest. Um, Maybe I should read this collection because the last well, thing I tried to read of his was actually London Fields and um, I oh, couldn't so get I into it. I love London Fields, but it's so out of date now, London Fields as well. But um the best thing, the bit that just made me clap and rather awkwardly, um, <laughs> it's actually Martin Amos writing about how novelists can sometimes just go off. And he writes really like he doesn't he doesn't refer to himself in this sense because he's still a very successful novelist, obviously. I mean, maybe I've stopped but kind of being... Do you think he being... is thinking of himself? No, but anyway, I just know. read it. I mean, it would be impossible not to. I mean, like in this essay, he kind of talks about the inevitability of, of novelists sort of going off and he talks about this essay is about Nabokov and you know he basically goes through well which books of Nabokov's are truly great and which are just shit and why does he go on about underage girls all the time like he's quite hard on Nabokov even though he's clearly in love with him but this reassured me so much right he says I've read at least half a dozen Nabokov novels at least half a dozen times and at least half a dozen times I have tried and probably failed to read Ada My first attempt took place about three decades ago. I put it down after the first chapter with a curious sensation, a kind of negative tingle. Every five years or so, this became the pattern. I picked it up again, and after a while, I began to articulate the difficulty. But this is dead, I said to myself. The curious sensation, the negative tingle, is of course miserably familiar to me now. It's the reader's response to what seems to happen to all writers as they overstep the biblical span. The radiance the life-giving power begins to fade. Last summer I went away with Ada and locked myself up with it, and I was right. At 600 pages, two or three times Nabokov's usual fighting weight, the novel is what homicide detectives call a burster. It is a waterlogged corpse, 
at the stage of maximal bloat. Oh, isn't that so great? Oh, you see what I mean? There's so oh. much reflection in those couple of paragraphs. And also I loved it because I've, I've tried to read Ada a bunch of times. I'm just like, I just don't like this. I'm just, am I too stupid for this novel? That is so good. I wonder also oh. at what point did Martin Amos hear the term burster, which I I've never heard, I know, and think I am just he... going to file that oh. away because that's going to be useful to describe something that is Fantastic. Because also I've never read that novel, I've never attempted to, and yet now that he's described it like that, I know exactly what that book must be like. I know. Oh, anyway, I've already underlined hundreds of things. Oh, that's fantastic. But, yeah, I I think that I am just absolutely – um, ready now just to only read nonfiction by Martin Amos and really enjoy it and, you know, um, there'll be bits that I won't like. But um, So there's, it, this book's um, broken up into a whole lot of um, kind of sections and um, there's, a, there's a lot about his, his literary figures that he writes a lot about ordinarily, so Saul Bellow, um, Nabokov, Philip Larkin, a little bit about Christopher Hitchens, who is, of course, his great friend. But he also writes a lot of stuff about politics. So he, because he lives now in the States, he, there's a, oh, a bunch right. of really good essays about the Trump campaign, oh, um, about the um, Mitt Romney campaign, which is very perceptive, funny, sharp, brutal. It's just him at his best, I think. Um, and John Travolta gets a few wow. essays. So he's kind of – and he writes about um, – the time he went and played celebrity poker in Las Vegas. So it's there's one about the House of Windsor that I'm looking forward to. So it's um, it's a real mix of things. Oh, but he's good. he's great at high culture and low culture, which is what is what makes him so um, so so great in this format. I'm loving it. So the rub of time. It's called the Martin rub of Amos. time. It's Incidentally, the cover photograph that Martin Amos has selected for the front. Shows him being really unrubbed by time. It's much. It's a much yes. younger shot, right? And, <laughs> and the, a very handsome. It's a shot very of handsome Martin brooding. Amos. You know, yeah. this is it's taken around about the time that he was seeing to great Jermaine Greer. I think. Well, um, interestingly, it says you know um, 1986 to 2016, but yeah. I'm, I'm calling that shot as pre 86. Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny because I remember once reading an essay by him about interviewing um, Truman Capote, which is a great. Great interaction. It's such. It, it, it appears in the collection called the Moronic Inferno, which oh, yeah. is a really good collection. I think I've talked about before. But um, <laughs> yeah, he concentrates quite a bit on like the cover photo that, um, or the, the jacket photo that Truman Capote um, selected for In Cold Blood, which is like where he looks like this incredible pretty boy, and it attracted a lot of comment at the time. And he asks Capote about it. He says, "I don't want to." choose that it was something that was just they picked out of the drawer <laughs> i used to love that on um, one of sean McAuliffe's shows i forget which one it was quite a few back now they had a publicity shot of him like you know hey when you walk through the abc yeah. where there's a giant photo yeah. of everyone he's had his eyes shut <laughs> like as if they'd just chosen the one bad shot of him <laughs> to you actually use that's very McAuliffe. hey you mentioned rachel cast i one did of the books, so let's yes, talk i read aftermath so did on I. holidays um Okay, I had a few problems with it. I didn't yep. like it as much as um, Transit and Mother Outline. Neither did I. Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so the bit that sort of I found puzzling, so it's unfolding basically as a straight first-person narrative, not clear if it's a really fiction or non-fiction, about this the is aftermath like, of her marriage. This is sort of the first book that Rachel Cusk wrote that made her sort of notorious. Oh, she wrote one about having children that made her a bit notorious. But right. this is basically an account of her marriage breakdown. Um, but is it meant 
Well, sorry, I, I was going to say is it meant to be fiction or non-fiction, but it gets to a point about two-thirds of the way through where it suddenly shifts from being a first-person, fairly straightforward read, shifts into a third-person thing about two characters called Sonia and Kurt who you have had nothing to mm. do with previously. Yeah. And to me it just felt like someone had just ripped on the handbrake and I was like, who are these people? And yeah. what? What was that about? But don't you think it was... I thought that same thing. So it's this incredibly intimate and searing, rending account of a marriage breakdown, right? So there's the there's the protagonist, a woman, who's separated from her husband. We don't really meet the husband except she talks, you know. It's not it's, really clear why It's basically – well, she's got a lot of sort of borderline Freudian explanation for it that she discussed with her therapist. But, like, it's basically her being – um, in the aftermath of a marriage breakdown, she's talking about how she's moving through her life and how she's struggling to. Um, she wants to she with- wants to be busted up with the marriage, but she struggles to sort of be single. You know, she shows up at places and it's just her and her two kids, and she feels like everyone else is in a couple, and um, she just sort of struggles. It's more I guess, existential with being alone. than that it is, too. It is, like, yeah. what is marriage, and to what extent does it constitute? You know, yeah. who you are, and then um, that part of it was all great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and she's got two daughters, yeah. and part of it is her, I suppose, reforming the way that she looks at them and that she relates to them now that they are her two children that aren't part of this sort of family. And she group. talks quite a bit about how she, prior to the marriage bra- breakup, she would have said, well, the mother and father are equally responsible for the children. And then she yeah. was shocked to hear herself say in a meeting at the lawyers, they're mine. Yeah. They're yeah. my children. Like I yeah. will have primary it's, it's a lot about her um, – uh, she spends a lot of time talking about um, what being a woman is and what being a man is and mm. that yeah. her transgression had been to be the man in this relationship. And like anyway, it, it was, it's it was really, really – I thought are, that was there great. There are patches of brilliance in it, but I yeah. think a lot of it – like some of it is a bit over um, – it's overwrought. It is. It is overwrought. It's yeah. exactly the word. And yeah. so it's really interesting reading that e- earlier book of hers when I think she's just reached such greater heights with both transit and outline, mm. which we both read and enjoyed. Um, and this is like it's it's like the plaster dummy that you know she messed around with before she did those books, like yeah. because th- there are some similar themes, but there's so much more intricately and sophisticatedly evoked in the later books than they are. Like there's a scene where she's – it's her mother's birthday. Her mother lives in the country so she, she makes this cake for her mother and it doesn't really work and it's a failure and she looks – it was meant to be so beautiful and gracious and actually it's all just mm. doughy and, and sort of rubbery and it looks like a crazy person's cake. And then she drives out there with a the cake in the back seat with the two children and then she arrives and they're setting up trestle tables and there's so many people in the family that haven't got enough tables so they've got these rough, differently matched tables but then you throw the cloths over the top and all of a sudden all of these floors are hidden. Like it's that sort of thing. Like it's a bit obvious. Yeah. But what you're talking about that happens later on all of a sudden there's this woman, Sonia, who seems to be a, like moving to a strange house in a strange country and she's on the phone to her sort of boyfriend, Kurt, who's in the, the country that she comes from. It's never quite sure which, but it's a European country and she's clearly moved to England. But then as you read, it's clear that she's come to be an au pair in a family, yeah, a, a mother where... and a father and two daughters who then split up. 
Yeah. That's what... That's what I took it to be, that she was now the first person, that the protagonist, yeah. this is her au pair, yeah. right? It was – I just thought the device of switching to the third person and leaving you f- to struggle for about 25 pages to make that – draw that conclusion. And I thought, is this the fig leaf of, oh, it's fiction, it's fiction. <laughs> like that's, what, that's what it left me I, with. And it just it annoyed it. me. Oh, really? I, I got so intensely annoyed. I finished it and just went, well, what was that? It was <laughs> no, really I really annoying. like – because it took me a while to get the epiphany where I'm like, oh, okay, so this is the family because it's, I guess – the whole, the rest of the book is such a supercharged work of inter- introspection. It's mm. almost, it hurts your head. Like you're, mm. you are in this woman's head. And even the extent to which she talks about her daughters and her ex-husband, it's, it is absolutely all viewed from inside this woman's cranium. And there is something so intense about that that you also get in some of her other novels, but it, it, it's, it, it is overwrought. But then I actually found that, shift once I kind of worked out what was going on and it probably took me about 10 pages to for the penny to drop and all oh, right okay so we're looking at this from a different angle I thought I I, I thought it was an okay decision um but then I felt like if you're going to do that and and that's a perfectly fine decision to do that well then why how could you not why would you not then rejig the rest of it to be not first person and no, why would you because not you would ruin the whole device and I well, think why would you for that device introduce some other characters to give that external perspective as well instead of just this bolt-on in the final. Because then you don't get that sense of building that you get. You know, it's so intense that by the end of the bit that's the narrative from the mother, you you feel like you're completely suffused by her and her views on herself and like it's suffocating. But then what you get next is a view that is so strange that you don't even recognize the woman because you don't recognize her from outside herself because you only know her from the inside yeah. and suddenly you've got this other figure who's actually undergoing quite a lot of trauma in her own yeah. life and the glimpses that you get of the woman are so one-dimensional you know mm. but but you can see that these are two worlds of trauma that are jostling next to each other i thought it was yeah i, I mean I don't mind that the idea of that device, I felt that it didn't work in yeah. the execution. Yeah. And this character no... was so far in their own headspace yeah. that I was just thinking for the husband, geez, mate, you've dodged a real bullet here. <laughs> <laughs> you should be glad that you saw the back end of this Well, bird. I mean, it does really raise the question. I deliberately, with all of these Rachel Cusk novels, you know, normally if I read something that's quite personal, like I'll start looking around for features or like a bit more information about how much of it is true, you know, is that um, what is this person really like? But I've never done that with Rachel Cuss because I want to read the books first because she's so intense and so clever and so, I mean, there's so much gorgeous structure to those later books. Mm. It's so elegant and funny as well. See, it's funny in those two later books are funny in a way that Aftermath just like it isn't. It's just so grim. Yeah, it's it's more um, the other two were just packed with insight and yeah. this one, I mean, look, maybe also I brought my expectations were too high because yeah. I'd found the others so amazing. Yeah. So I was just like, oh, jeez. Yeah, no, but it's I, definitely I, – I I just Google image searched her because yeah. I wanted to see what she looked like, but I won't tell you. You can, you can okay. Well, if you, if we you should, choose, we should, we should to. jointly Google. <laughs> hey, I got to go to a meeting. Yep, so um, I better disappear. Great. Okay. Um, so well, save all your other thoughts for later. Yeah. God, 
We always just stretch things out. We just talked about carrots for 35 minutes, really, basically, didn't we? Sorry, everybody. And I loved it. Next week, another vegetable. (laughs) Bye. Bye.